and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host, Monica Marvelous. How's it going, Monica? Oh, it's going pretty good. It's almost Christmas. It's after Christmas. Christmas was like three days ago. You had a great time, uh, I assume. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> listener time. Recording time and listener time are different. Right. The magic of podcast time travel. We are after Christmas. I had a great time. I got lots of fun stuff. Santa came. It was lovely, and I'm sure it was for you as well. <laughs> That's how this works. I have already eaten all of my Christmas cookies, which I feel like is a problem. <laughs> it's especially a problem if you're serious and you really have eaten them all. And as we record, it is two days before Christmas. So if you have none left yet, exactly. that, that is also, that is definitely a problem. Just us today. What are we talking about? We're talking about spies, Math. Spies. Real yeah. spies or, or fake spies? Mm, not, <laughs> not real spies. Definitely not real spies. I am very sorry that I made you watch the latest Kingsman installment. And I'm also very sorry to any listener who also watched the latest Kingsman installment in preparation for this podcast, (laughs) because I thought it would be a really good segue to talk about James Bond and No Time to Die, which is a movie that I had a lot of thoughts about, but we didn't have a chance to talk about when it originally came out. And then I thought it would be a really good chance to just talk, I mean, movie spies in general, but especially movie spies that are part of that sort of classic spy genre. So really that 60s era of of spies, the the original incarnation of James Bond and all of the things that came after. And all of the ways that they, I guess, reflect on James Bond or do not reflect on James Bond (laughs) as evidenced by, again, that latest Kingsman installment that we watched so you don't have to. Okay, we'll catch up to the Kingsman installment in a moment because we have two guests that came to talk with us about your topic. Again, you chose this. (laughs) I did. I did choose this. No, but I don't think either of them actually went and watched it either. So I don't think you have to apologize to too many people. Based on the box office returns, I think nationally, it might just be me and you that went and saw this film. So we're probably okay. But first, I want to welcome back to, to the show, uh, Anna Papard, my co-host on my other show. Hey, Anna, haven't talked to you in forever. It's been a few hours. Yeah, we were just, we were recording the holiday episode of our other podcast, Gosh Golly Wow, about the Marvel comic series Excalibur. I'm sure you hear lots about that on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we did a video holiday episode and it was a lot of fun. Coming yeah. out Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. Or, or came out Christmas yeah, Day. Came yeah, came out Christmas it was, Day. It apologies. Was eight, everyone loved it <laughs> three days ago. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> so One, Anna, you are a spy fan. I am. I am. Spies and superheroes are two of my things. And I signed a book contract the week before the first pandemic lockdown started. <laughs> so I haven't written any of this book because things went crazy. But I do technically have a book under contract, part of the TV Milestone series, to write about Man from Uncle, which is one of my great loves. And yeah, if that book ever gets written, uh, assuming (laughs) I have full research access to the library again, which I really haven't had for two years, I'm going to talk about the way that that show negotiates identity and some of the important differences in that show between how kind of spies work in the more domestic space of television versus the very different space of kind of a big budget film. One of the differences that we can get into this on the podcast, but one of the really representative differences that I found in my research was an old issue of Life magazine that describes Napoleon Solo from Man from Uncle as the living room spy and James Bond as the bedroom spy. The idea being that Napoleon Solo is a nice spy that you can take home to meet your parents. And we can get into that a little bit more if you want. I'm I'm not getting his eye to meet my at the point. (laughs) But before we get it, we will get into that. We will get we also have Trisha Jenkins, who is a new friend, first time on the 
show. Hi, Tristan. Nice to meet you. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And you also are into spies and spy type. Yeah, so I wrote my dissertation at Michigan State on the way that women function in the spy narrative, especially in American television series. But my real passion came. So my research specialty is really the way that government agencies, whether it be the CIA or the Department of Defense or NASA, works with the Hollywood film and television industry to influence narratives. And so my very first book was called The CIA in Hollywood, the way that the agency shapes film and television. So that basically looks at the way that the CIA's public entertainment, it's actually called, it's under the public affairs office, but it's called the Entertainment Industry Liaison Office. When that opened, why that opened, and then how they've been able to influence by narrative since about the mid-1990s. Oh, very cool. Wow. So then are you, not to just jump right into it, but I'm going to jump right into it. Are you telling me that there is essentially a, uh, <laughs> a, a shadow network that is influencing the betrayal of these agencies within Hollywood then? If, if it is an official partnership. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a shadow network because it's all done in public view and actually taxpayers fund the office. But a lot of people don't know <laughs> that it exists. So yes, mm-hmm. the, the CIA actually has an office. It's a pretty small office and they are dedicated to working with Hollywood film and television writers to, yeah, basically shape the CIA's image in, in the popular imagination. And so how much of that is consulting work similar to the way that like a, a doctor might have been brought onto a show like House to, to talk about the medical terminology and the, the accuracy of it versus actually shaping opinion? Yeah, so that's a great question. It's both similar and unsimilar. So if you ask anybody from the CIA's public affairs office, they will say that they are in this business to educate Americans about what the CIA does. And they will point to films actually like James Bond to say, you know, this is super fantastical and it's not really what we do. And the public gets most of its ideas about what intelligence is from film and TV. And so our job is to make film and TV shows more accurate, more realistic so that people know what we do. Mm -hmm. The real reason, though, that they're in this business is a couple of reasons. One is recruitment. So they actually love films like the Bourne trilogy or the James Bond series because it makes spying look awesome and glamorous and you get to go to foreign locales and wear cool clothes. And uh, they like the glamorous image because it makes people want to, you know, be James Bond and apply to the CIA. But the other thing that they use it for is to convince the public that they are effective and efficient and they are not dropping the ball, which is something they got criticized for very heavily after 2001 and the September 11th attacks. And so they use it for like PR purposes, essentially. I mean, that's really interesting because you're pointing at one, that you get to go to all of these glamorous places, but also two, this idea that like the a very fantastical version of spies. And those two ideas seem kind of at odds with each other because I also feel like part of the reason that at least I'm a fan of the spy genre is the fantastical part of it. Like, I love that everyone is wearing clothes that would conceivably make them stand out much more than a spy should actually want to, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The last thing that you want to be if you're going to be an effective spy is to yeah, stand out because you're super fashionable, right? I think to work for MI6, I think you can't I have to look this up, but I think you can't be taller than like 5'10 or 5'11 if you're a guy. And, <laughs> I and fit in. I do that. Definitely taller. <laughs> than that. Because there is a sense in which this is an episode about all of the things that we love, which is the excess of espionage rather than espionage, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you really think, so if you're going to work for the CIA, it doesn't ever mean that you're ever going to be in the field, right? So those are people who work for just one particular directorate, and that's the directorate. It used to be called the Directorate of Clandestine Operations. I think it's just called Operations now. And that's just a small group of people. But you have other people who work in the Directorate of Science and 
technology. You've got folks who work desk jobs basically as analysts, and they usually specialize in a subject or a country or a region. And those folks, you know, never see exotic locales for the most part. So those types of jobs don't sell well. <laughs> like nobody's like, oh, yes, I want to be an analyst at the CIA because that's not the image of spies that we get in popular culture. We get these fantastical versions like James Bond. And so when people go to the CIA, they always want the operation side of things because that's what popular culture makes seem so cool. Well, yeah, and I can certainly add that, you know, with Man from Uncle, you know, they made up that imaginary organization that's Uncle, which is sort of MI6, sort of the CIA, sort of the UN, sort of all of those things bound up together. And they were apparently just flooded with fan letters of people trying to join Uncle, perceiving <laughs> it as a real organization. So very effective, very effective marketing in that case for the life of a spy. I mean, to that degree, so I actually have been to the Huntsman and Sons shop that's in London. It's a real tailor shop for listeners who aren't familiar with the Kingsman franchise. It's supposed to be the headquarters. And the director, Matthew Vaughn, did pick it because he has been a long time Huntsman and Sons customer. And I mm-hmm. went in and I talked to a salesperson and I asked them a bunch of questions. And I was like, how many customers do you actually get come in and purchase a custom tailored suit, which is a fair amount of money based yes. on having watched a shitty movie by the creators of Kick-Ass? Like, because <laughs> to me, those don't kind of seem like the same viewing audiences. And they were like, one, it's actually a, they get a fair amount of clientele. They get a lot of fans who come in who just want to take photos in the shop. And then, you know, you buy like the cheapest item, the same way that luxury goods have now like marketed cheap accessories. So it has actually driven purchasing, but they have gotten people who have ordered custom suits specifically because they saw a film. It's a lot of Korean customers, but it's not all Korean customers. Like it is an international market that found its way into this tailor shop to buy these suits from this movie. I mean, that's good. I I wonder how much of the audience cares. Like, I mean, you're, we're talking about how, how is it realistic or not, but I don't expect law enforcement to be like like it is on, on you know, Law & Order SVU. Like that's not how, that's not how expected. I know that doctoring is not what I see on ER or House. So I like, I wouldn't expect life to be like Kingsman. That doesn't, but you know, if I can, if I can enjoy it, you know, I, I I also I also like the Hawkeye TV series, but that's not how archery works. Yeah, but I mean, there's obviously specific things caught up in the veneration of spies. I mean, having to do with empire and imperialism and what's being mm-hmm. marketed and how. And I mean, the consumerism of spies is really crucial to that Cold War context, as I'm sure Trisha knows very well. I mean, yeah, when you even look at these these marketing tie-ins between Huntsman and Kingsman, it's not a new thing. Like we've been cross-promoting the idea of consumer goods that are associated with James Bond and his style mm-hmm. or, you know, since since we've had James Bond, like, which is not something that's unique to the spy genre in general, but just that not every film in the history of film has had product tie-ins, but the spy genre in particular has had significantly more product tie-ins than other genres. Well, yeah. how many cars does James Bond sell, right? I mean, that's like a big tenant of the movies is what's he driving this time? Which car is it? You know? And whenever he switches to a new car, like there was, I'm trying to remember which one it was 
was that like he suddenly had an Americar. He has a Mustang in one of them, and it's weird. No, it, it was that he went from a, an Aston Martin to a BMW. I feel like a big deal because they were like, "Oh, yeah. it's a more accessible car," and it was like, "Is a BMW really a more accessible car?" Like, <laughs> diamonds <laughs> are forever. Bond world, sure. Yeah. But... Well, in, in diamonds are forever. He drives a Mustang, and it's like weird. But you know, because James Bond's driving a Mustang or Aston Martin or however many BMWs he's done, he has the Z3 and Golden. I see the, the fact that I know this off the top of my head. <laughs> like I know that he had the Z3 because I love right? because I yeah. love that car. Right? Yeah. I mean, I can't afford one, but I love that car. So one of the things I think is important to this is that there's a different tradition of the British spy story and the American spy story. So the mm-hmm. British spy story is very much tied up in this notion of the gentleman spy, and that comes from you know the history of MI6, where it was very much taking their intelligence service from you know Cambridge, Oxford, Eton. Like I know that he had the Z3 because I love right? because I yeah. love that car. Right. Yeah. I mean, I can't afford one, but I love that car. So one of the things I think is important to this is that there's a different tradition of the British spy story and the American spy story. So the mm-hmm. British spy story is very much tied up in this notion of the gentleman spy. And that comes from, you know, the history of MI6, where it was very much taking their intelligence service from, you know, Cambridge, Oxford, Eton. And that got translated into a lot of the spy fiction because when when they retired, or, you know, decided to pursue other career opportunities, those spies, you know, came to write fictional worlds. And Ian Fleming is a good example of that. It's not really until Ian Fleming's novels that you have the genre tied up with this preoccupation of expensive consumer goods. And I really like I think like the fetish, I can never say this word, the fetishization of technological gadgetry, right? That's something that Fleming's novels and then the films like really brought to the genre. And the American tradition does not rely so heavily on the gentleman spy. If you think about Jason Bourne, for instance, versus James Bond, it's a very different type of spy. So I haven't seen the the most recent Kingsman. I was going to go on Christmas, but now you guys have talked me out of it. No, 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 no. <laughs> but I think I, I saw the first one and I liked the first one because I thought I it did that. something smart, which was that it took the, the tradition of, you know, the James Bond gentleman spy, but it also sold it to a second demographic, which was mm-hmm. like a more working class demographic, right? Because you have this protagonist who comes from a working class background and he is taken under the umbrella of the king's men and, and, and he becomes gentrified, right? And so it's definitely in that tradition, but it's doing something new, which was tapping into that second demographic, which I thought worked really well. I mean, I, one thing that's interesting is the second film kind of doesn't fit that model that we're talking about because the second film is about meeting the American spy agency. And instead, that one is very glamorized as this like old West cowboy mythology, which doesn't exactly (laughs) sound like the American spies when we recall Jason Bourne, right? I mean, I love the Kingsman movies. I love, and by the Kingsman movies, I mean the first two. First two. We saw this this week. I I very much like the first one and including the controversial scene that everybody hates, but uh, it works for that movie. I like the second one, this third part, but I like the second one because of the disjointedness and the years of trying to sell mythology of the American cowboy as the mythology of the British spy. I, I thought the construction of hero that is the gentleman spy, Trisha, you said at the very beginning, you know, the last thing you want is for your spy to stand out. Like, like Hollywood spies are a, you know, a Hollywood invention in the same way that Hollywood cowboys are a Hollywood invention and liked seeing sort of integrate each other, which I thought was a nerdy academic way that, it, you know, that I don't expect me to. <laughs> but but I, I, maybe 
the reason I didn't like this new one was because there was none of that, aside from the fact that it also just wasn't very funny. I want the mythology. I want the mythology of this fancy British gentleman driving a fancy car. I'm still thinking about like exceptions to that, though. And, you know, in terms of the cowboy example, you know, the 60s version of Wild Wild West, where he is a cowboy mm-hmm. spy and it's very much in the super spy, gentleman spy tradition. And I mean, how would we classify something like that? I mean, it's set in the past, so it's not really the same as James Bond. And yet it has all the same hallmarks as those of, of those spy, spy texts in terms of the things that it does with sort of fetishizing, I'll use that word, of the male body and technology. And very much the protagonist of Wild Wild West is definitely a gentleman spy, I think. Yeah, I think the Bond formula certainly influenced American film and TV after the 60s. Like mm-hmm. Man from Uncle, Girl from Uncle has all of this technological gadgetry that's usually built into their, their costumes, right? Or their wardrobe. Even there was a show in 2001 that I loved and adored. It was called Alias. It starred Jennifer Garner. And so that's got a female protagonist. So obviously that's breaking the mold of the of the gentleman spy. But she still had a preoccupation with technology. You know, there's an American version basically of Q in that show. Doesn't necessarily have the product placement, although I do remember there's a lot of product placement of cars and cell phones in that show. But they were very like more middle class fare. You know, it was like a Ford and a, and a Samsung, something along those lines. I mean, you bring up an interesting discussion of gender as well, because I, I do feel like treatment of gender in all of those sort of classic spy genre is is doing something where it, it also creates, we have the gentleman spy, but then we also have this archetype of like the, I'm going to call her the, I'm more capable than you female, who's, who seems to appear <laughs> in every iteration of this genre, right? Yeah, like she's a, like, she comes out of that whole time period, which I feel like was late 90s, early 2000s of the chicks who kick, right? So it's La Femme Nikita or it's Angelina Jolie's character in Salt, which was such a hard sell because Angelina's body is so thin and unmuscular in that series that I had a really hard time believing that she was able to pull off some of the physical feats that the action thriller demanded of her. And then I'm trying to think of some other examples. Jennifer Garner, obviously an alias. Pam Anderson in Barbed Wire. There's a, yeah, there's a lot. The 90s definitely have the femme fatale as protagonist thing that happens. Eon Flo. So there's a bunch of yeah, but if you go back like to the shows of the 1960s, that's not how women function in the genre. So they usually are still damsels in distress. So if you think about like Agent 99 and Maxwell Smart and Get Smart, she's the brains and he's the brawn. But mm-hmm. throughout that entire series, she has the great ideas, but she still makes him feel like the ideas were his, right? And she's the one. There's some episode where they're like in the jungle and she gets really tired after walking like an hour and a half and has to stop. And I think she ends up getting captured because of it. So she doesn't really have any physical prowess. What she has is the smarts that Maxwell Smart ironically lacks. So there, there mm-hmm. isn't like before the 1990s, there isn't this tradition of like the female spy who's this really cool, you know, woman who is still hyper feminized, but is also great with guns and, and action moves. In the 60s, it's really a much more like, I don't know, like, I don't know what the word I want is. It's just like, like basically kind of like normal or kind of weak for the action genre that women mm-hmm. participate in. But then again, we still have exceptions, right? I mean, in Honey West and Emma Peel in particular and yeah. Honor Blackman's so cool. And, you know, then then uh, in New Avengers as well, we have that uh, continued with Joanna Lumley's character. Yeah, Emma Peel is a great exception. I thought she was so cool. She's the best. I want a black leather one-piece Emma Peeler suit. Mm-hmm. Of course. That's actually, oh, <laughs> fun fact, that's not the Emma Peeler suit. The Emma, so the, the leather one is created, <laughs> this is a thing I know a lot about guys 
Uh, and I'm so excited to share my facts with you. The leather suit was created in John Sutcliffe's workshop, who did leather fetish gear. And then the Emma Peeler was actually created in season five and is the polyester crimpoline one-piece suit. So the one-piece through line is still there, but the Emma Peeler is very specifically only used in relation to the season five garments. Right? Because at the time, Diana Rigg was like, oh, I'm so done with wearing leather. And they basically had to come up with something else that would be equally as sexy and yet easier for her to move in because she refused to wear the leather catsuit anymore. Love that. <laughs> Thank you for I mean, totally the- blowing my fantasy of the Emma Peeler suit associated with that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can still feel sexy in a polyester one piece. <laughs> well, you definitely can. I don't, I I don't think- know that that's possible, but at least you don't have to iron it when you travel. <laughs> <laughs> I think Emma Peel's special, though. I, I hear what Trisha's saying because we've got this tradition. This is a little bit something that I that I do follow a lot is like hard boiled Hollywood cinema, which you know is sort of in a lot of ways predates the spy genre. But your you know your hard boiled private eye, the femme fatale comes out of that. But she is not a hero. The femme fatale is a villain, a seductress. Always. Yeah, it, uh, well, either a villain or victim. Action is her power, not physicality. That is a relatively new thing with exceptions that make the rule. So like you have Peel where it's like, oh my God, she's a chick and she can kick ass. That was like what made her special. She was throwing men around. And then the same thing happens with uh, with 99 on Get Smart to a lesser extent. But then I'm thinking in the 70s, and it's not quite a spy movie. It's sort of a, a cop series. But Charlie's Angels is, is, I think, effectively a spy show. And they're in the middle there, right? Like you'll underestimate them because they're women. Woo. You know, that's like part of the, the serious hook to the show. Well, yeah. you get these you get these waves of female action heroes at certain moments of feminism too, right? Charlie's Angels is part of the <laughs> the Jiggle the TV, TV phenomenon. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but I mean, also part of, you know, there was the Wonder Woman show, there was Power of Isis, there was Bionic Woman. Mm-hmm. You did have this mm-hmm. brief little surge of, of female action hero shows to coincide with uh, a decision to, to try to sell second wave feminism as, as a pop culture thing. Sort of a little mm-hmm. late, but they were trying to cash in on that for sure. I, I mean, when we think about the Charlie's Angels re- like the relaunch the the movies with Drew Barrymore and, and Lucy Liu and Cameron Diaz they're fitting right in that sort of same Nikita era and Alias era right because they, they're also coming in at that sort of like late 90s early 2000s but I feel like those are treated as much more like 70s nostalgia movies than seeming to fit in with that same like girls who are tough era because, because the Charlie's Angels movies to me are like those are very much like fashion shows in which no one like you, you don't really care <laughs> if if they physically can kick ass or not that's not why they're there you're there to watch them be like like fun sexy mm-hmm. like wearing fun clothes and then they just so happen to like kick somebody on the side <laughs> that was 2000 but even as far as late as that charlie's angels and charlie's angels full throttle it's played for laughs you know like the, it, yes they are kick-ass but I, I don't know that that sh- I don't 
know that those films do as well if they try to if they try to be serious Charlie's Angels. I think that's kind of one of the reasons that the the 2019 Charlie's Angels fail was that it tried too hard to take itself seriously and people sort of rejected that in a way that I, I, I liked it. I liked 2019 Charlie's Angels. So I liked but, um, it, but, but I, I only liked things. the moments in which Kristen Stewart was dressed up fun and looked sexy and winked at the camera because those <clears throat> felt like the briefest glimpses in which I was getting to watch Charlie's Angels full throttle again. There, there is a sense, I saw a tweet that was essentially like, why did they dress everyone in PacSun? And it's the reason that I just can't get behind the late, because they did, they took it too seriously. <laughs> well, I mean, can we t take a moment to consider, you know, we're talking about how sexist the genre is, you know, the spy-fi genre going way back to its origins. And yet I would argue that partly because of the ways that it mobilizes gender and in terms of the ways it mobilizes masculinity, it's very performative. It's very mm -hmm. fetishized. You know, these are some of the things that draw me to the genre, certainly is the subversive aspects of masculinity in this space, even when it doesn't think it's being subversive, it is. At least there is those possibilities there, right? And sort of the sexual subversions, the gender subversions of that space do open possibilities for women to be active. So even though characters like Honey West and Emma Peel are exceptions, it is still interesting that this space at least opens up those opportunities, because certainly we weren't seeing those other characters in any other genres, like at that time. I mean, yeah, in something like a superhero comic book, but we weren't seeing them on television during that time. Right, yeah, I, right. I want to ask you guys what you think about the, the new James Bond being female and whether or not you think that that's going to work for the franchise. But actually, before I ask that question, yeah, one of the things that I think is really interesting about the direction that the James Bond franchise has gone in is that like historically, the, the James Bond formula has been, you know, the hero is hyper masculine, super straight. His desirability is a metaphor for the desirability of capitalism and, and the British Empire, right? Which mm -hmm. meant that the formula of the villains who are always ethnic others or physically deformed or sexually quote-unquote deviant in some way, shape, or form, that, that formula is being changed, right? So you have now a, a British actress from a Jamaican background, like a Black actress, right, who's set to be the new, the new Bond. And then this last one, Q, is clearly gay. And that is something that would have under, you know, the Fleming era or even in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s of the Bond films would have marked him as a villain rather than as being on the side of MI6. There's also a point where James Bond himself has has shifted to also be in this portrayal of what Fleming would have considered a villain when we look at fashion. Fleming loved to name drop brands, designers, detailed descriptions of wardrobe for all of his villains in that he would say something like he is wearing Cartier cufflinks and a Rolex watch. And it was meant to be this symbolization that like was also an indicator of their moral corruption to care so much about brands and spend so much money on these luxury purchases. And it was this idea that your morality can be sort of swayed um, by capitalism versus James Bond, who's a person who style described, but there's never that same level of definition or name dropping, specifically because James Bond is supposed to be seen as such a good spy that you could never fully nail down his his style or his brands or know where he shops. It's part of his mystery. And then over time, as we add in part of the marketing campaign, part of the costume design to know
know the tailor that made the suit, to know the product tie-in that's being worn, to know even to care so much about the name of the car that he's driving. It's also sort of twisting that original message to then, are, are we saying that James Bond can also be swayed by fashion? Are we saying that fashion is no longer an indication of moral corruption? So there is sort of even these more like subtle, gradual shifts happening within the James Bond genre over time that are changing this meaning of what a gentleman spy is. Sort of baked yeah. into the genre on a thematic level in terms of the spy's relationship to objecthood. I mean, spies are objects. They're like tools of the government and that can feminize them symbolically. And the fact that they sort of rely on gadgets, the fact that they rely on a lot of soft skills like seduction can feminize them as well. And so I find the spy's relationship to objecthood and how that evolves in different eras to be really, really interesting in terms of how we're thinking about masculinity or femininity or genre or, or gender more generally generally in any given era, right? Yeah, and the way that Bond's body itself has become an object of, of desire, right? So when I can't remember, I can't remember what film it is, but it's that famous scene where Daniel Craig comes out of the ocean in his oh, right. Casino Royale. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he is basically right. functioning in that scene as the Bond girl, right? In the way that, mm -hmm. you know, Honey Rider comes out of the ocean in the same way in the 60s. Mm -hmm. I, my favorite in the same Bond, outfit. <laughs> Actually, yeah. my two favorite Bond films are Casino Royale. So I'm sad that I didn't remember that was where he was looking pretty nice. It's <laughs> um, rent free in my and, brain forever. <laughs> yeah, well, I can see why. That film and also No Time to Die. And the reason that I love those two is because it changed the Bond formula. It was this, you know, for a while, it just felt like it was, I always feel like a good film in any given franchise or genre has a blend of invention and convention, right? That it sticks to some of the tried and true formulas. You feel like you saw a Bond film, right? You got the Bond, James Bond line, or you got the shaken, not stirred line, or, you know, there's a hot woman in an exotic locale, you know, you get those things, but then you don't want to see the same film over and over again. So there's got to be some invention. The invention for me in Casino Royale and in No Time to Die is that Bond is actually like a fully fledged human being. He gets, I remember seeing Casino Royale and going, oh my God, he's bleeding. Like he's hurt. He's wounded. He needs time to recoup. And in both of Casino Royale and No Time to die, he falls in love and he gets his heart broken. And that's something that we never saw in any of the other Bond films that I know that he married Diana Rigg and in one film. Secret Service is, is my favorite, so I gotta rep yeah. it. <laughs> but like like the emotional depth of that character, I felt mm. really came to fruition in those two. And I don't, you know, I don't know how Fleming would have felt about it, but it, it, it takes him away from the hyper-masculine, like women are just objects and I don't care about them and I don't get hurt and I have this like tough guys that I always wear. I feel like that mask comes off in those two films and I really appreciated those films because of it. I am so interested to hear you say that you loved No Time to Die because it is perhaps my least favorite Bond film <laughs> I have ever seen. I, I think uh, that really? my favorite might be Skyfall because I appreciate the legacy and history that I feel like is being called back to within that film. But for In No Time to Die, I specifically have such a large critique with Bond's expression of masculinity, specifically with the like the secret baby and the fact that he seems to only gain humanity when he becomes a father because it feels like such a trope 
for me. Yeah, I'm trying to think that through. I guess I feel like in Casino Royale, he, in Casino Royale, he had that same kind of humanity that he experiences after falling in love and then having that woman betray him, even though it was for good reason. And it explains like how he becomes this hard-hearted womanizer like later. But I still feel like I saw that kind of full scale of humanity in Casino Royale. I will say that I went into No Time to Die. I didn't read anything about it. I didn't. Can I, okay, there's a big spoiler at the end. I won't give it away, but it's huge. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, you, can, you can give it away. It's, okay. It's like spoilers. Oh no! Spoiler warning. Spoiler warning. Spoiler alert. Yeah. It's like like Bond, as we have known, Bond dies at the end of this film, and I didn't read about it. It was I I didn't see it coming. I freaking cried at a James Bond Aww. film, which <laughs> which is not an emotional response I would ever expect to have inside that franchise. So oh boy, yeah, I, I cried during I cry, I I cry at the action scenes because they're just so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that he still has his moment of trial. Like even though the bombs are coming in, he doesn't wait in the basement. Right, like he goes up on the roof top to watch them come in and like he still kind of faces his death with bravery and so he's still got like this dignity in his death but yeah i was super sad about it <laughs> I, I, but can you be the best spy ever if you die like, it, to me that yeah. has always been like the thesis of james bond is he is the best spy ever so See, can you be the best spy ever if you die to me you can't which is also why <laughs> I remain very, very angry about No Time to Die. That's why I made us do this show, guys. <laughs> wow. Well, okay, so so I wonder, because to me, you can. And, and okay, obviously, okay, so, so spoilers, there's going to be more James Bond. Eon Productions has one cash cow. This is it. They're going to reboot it. And they said so, like, in the post credits. So I'm not worried about that. That said, what makes these films, the Daniel Craig films, work it all for me is that, I, in my head, James Bond is... Roger Moore, because films that I grew up watching, but like I recognize that that era is over. You can't do it anymore. You can't even really do Pierce Brosnan. So they tried to do something different, and you were able to cry because they gave James Bond a character beyond I'm gonna make bad puns and fuck every girl. <laughs> That's the movie, and I loved it, you know, as a kid, and I adore them now. But they're ridiculous, and I don't think that flies in the same way. I think that allowing him to grow and bleed and care and die—that's better. And yeah, it means we've got to reboot the, the series. But you know, we reboot. Batman. We reboot Spider-Man. We can reboot James Bond. We've been rebooting James Bond. It's fine. Like, you know, we've done it before. We'll do it again. Yeah. I, I guess my question is, do you guys think that they can reboot James Bond with a female lead? Because I feel like... They're not going to. I don't think they have it in them. I mean, I know that he's there, I'd be, but I'd I don't... be shocked, but I, which I know is very cynical of me. But... I, I gotta say, that's the other reason that I'm fucking pissed about No Time to Die is I thought that a female James Bond in that movie worked. I thought she was awesome. I thought the casting was perfect. I was all about it. And then we get Lashana to the end Lynch. of the movie. We should, we should say Lashana Lynch as Nomi. <laughs> so I was on board. And then we get to the end of the movie and Eon is like, yeah, maybe we won't use her. Cause you know, we kind of, they like, they backpedaled. They like, she gives the, again, spoiler. She gives the title back to James Bond at some point in time. And so she's technically no longer 007 and she can just be another 00 that like exists in the universe and to me that's some bullshit like it worked <laughs> and and so maybe you need to like stick with your decision maybe like I think she should be the next James Bond I think that that's what you set me up to believe was gonna happen and it worked for me and so they just need to stick with it did they okay. really set you up to believe that or was that like internet hype right because like Casino Royale is a reboot it's you know the first Daniel Craig movie is like his 
first day on the job. It's very right. clear. And yes, I realize Judy Dench carries over, but it, it's clearly the beginning of his career. He's not the Pierce Brosnan character. And I don't think they ever promised that Lashana Lynch was going to be the new character moving forward. I think that's where the internet hype machine took it. And I think that would be interesting. But I think that until there's money and not doing it, I don't think that I don't think Eon Productions is where we're going to like break new ground and, you know, feminism. I just it'd be great if they were, but they're not. I'm, I'm really of two <laughs> minds, though, about like whether I mean, the feminist potential of having a female James Bond. And I mean, just let me explain. It's just James Bond is not a positive character. James Bond is a horrible imperialist dinosaur character. And that's why I have a little bit of a because having sort of a, a, a black woman kind of be the agent, it does potentially paper over a lot of those problems through sort of the disguise of representation. And it's not necessarily dealing with the political problems of the entire story world. It's kind of papering over them. And then we're supporting this character as a good character because we want to support the representation. So I have I'm of two minds about it. And I don't know sort of how I feel about kind of the ways that feminism works in that space. I don't know if you can be a feminist as I understand feminism and be James Bond, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. I guess the comparison I want to make is picking the new James Bond a little bit like when they pick a new pope, like they never, <laughs> they okay. never stray too far. Like it was a big deal when we picked a pope from South America for the first time. It's still a white guy. Mm -hmm. He just happens to be from South America. And I feel like as much as we want James Bond to break new ground, the way that Anna's saying, it, it does sort of have to be incremental in order to mm -hmm. address the problems thoughtfully and fully in a way that is not just diversity casting for diversity casting, but in actually attempting to change for good moving forward. I mean, if mm -hmm. I can just be sort of crass for a moment, part of the appeal for James mm -hmm. Bond to me is like watching this imperialist white guy get the shit beat out of him. I mean, that is part, part of the appeal for me, like I'm being honest. Because I mean, that's part of the movie. Like, I mean, it's mm -hmm. like watching this guy suffer for the decisions that he's made is part of the movie. And yes, it does redeem that character. And that's part of the huge political problem of James Bond movies is the fact that it glorifies that figure, even as it deconstructs that figure. But definitely, I still wouldn't get that particular kind of appeal of watching the imperialist get the shit beat out of him if it's a female character. Yeah, I left No Time to Die thinking that she was going to be the next 007 or that his daughter was going to come back as the next 007. So either way, I thought that the, the film was setting it up for a female James Bond. And you're right, that might not be the direction that they go in. And I'm not sure a female James Bond works and it's for different reasons. It's for me, James Bond as a character is so tied up in notions of masculinity that I feel like if you put a female in that role, you lose a lot of like the essential qualities of his character, whether or not they're good or bad, right? Like, mm -hmm. and, and some of that could be fun to see. Like, you know, <laughs> I sound so unfeminist, but I'm just going to point out that I used to teach in a women and gender studies <laughs> um, program. <laughs> so I'm going to preface that by saying, you know, one of the things I love about James Bond is that he's just a male slut. Like, I, I like watching 
him seduce women. And I remember, I think it was in Casino Royale, there's like 20 year old and a 50 year old woman and he sleeps with both of them. And that's when I knew I was getting old because I, I like identified with a 50 year old woman in that film more than the 20 year old. Um, <laughs> but I think if you have a woman in that same position, it, it could be cool to watch. But I also feel like it problematizes things as well. So yeah, I just, I, it's kind of like the, 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 one of you brought it up earlier. It's kind of like this notion of colorblind casting, right? So mm -hmm. it might not cast for her color in a particular role, but it doesn't make that role color specific, right? No. So in some ways that lets Hollywood off the hook by not having to tell stories of, of, of people of color because you, you can point to like on-screen diversity and say, look, we've done our job. But a lot of times mm -hmm. when you do colorblind casting, those actors or actresses are really put into what are essentially white stories, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if the same thing is going to work in the James Bond franchise. In other words, if you put a woman, is it the same thing as kind of like gender blind casting where you're really just asking a woman to play a man's story without changing that story to make it more specific and gender specific specifically? Well, yeah, that's my complaint effectively. I'm like, I'm like the world of James Bond doesn't stop being misogynist if it's a woman playing Bond. Right. And that's a problem to me. To me, the question is, or do we want a cool story about a cool spy lady? Right. And I think those are different questions. I think that I'm just trying to think, the alias TV show, I think is great. Right. I think La Femme Nikita and, 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 um, point, uh, what is the American point, point, point break? Right. No, Point Break, the other one. Point Break is a surfer movie. There's yeah, Homeland. Point Break is for, with no, well, well, Homeland, Point of No Return. It's a remake of Love and Nikita. Oh, that's the remake, yeah. yeah. But I think, I think those are good movies and I think they're interesting. And what do you get in having a, a female James Bond instead of a male James Bond other than having people argue on the internet? Like, I, and I don't know how much people arguing on the internet is worth to me so much as I want to tell the good story. And, and my, to take it away from spies, like, I don't want to end up in a situation where you end up with the 2016 Ghost, where no one cared about that movie one way or the other. As it turns out, I thought the movie was mediocre. By the way, I think most Ghostbusters movies are mediocre. But I, <laughs> but I thought the Ghostbusters reboot was mediocre and no one cared because people were arguing instead about, oh, but like there's girls in it and it's a boy movie. And I'm like, this is stupid. Like just and I think that goes away if you try to if you don't call it Ghostbusters. I think that you could have made that movie without attaching it to the IP and I think it would have been interesting. And what does it mean to be James Bond if you are not a drunken male slut, right? Like when when they cast Daniel Craig in 2005, I remember people arguing about whether or not he could do it because he was blonde. Like that was an issue for yeah, people. Yeah. <laughs> well, he has a That's working what I mean. You might not think that after watching Knives Out, but I remember thinking and I remember reading reviews saying not only is he blonde, but he has like the face of a boxer, right? So it was timed yeah, yeah. like a working class framework when for so long it had been these, you know, posh folks like Sean Connery or Pierce Brosnan, etc. And so even that minor disruption was was big in the, the review world or the, the chatter world. Right. I, like you could, you could do like the feminist female James Bond, but you would have to rewrite the story world so much around that. I've got zero faith in that franchise's ability mm -hmm. to do that well. And that's my fear better too. Movie. <laughs> like, why aren't you just making a, a new better movie rather than like, why are you attaching it to these three three numbers because that's really what you're doing you're just trying to redeem the number zero zero seven and i don't care that much I, i'd rather see i'd rather see a good story what i would rather see is kind of a franchise that was related to kind of james bond and kind of set within that world but showing different characters relationship to that world and having distinct mm -hmm. identities and not necessarily having to mm -hmm. occupy the james bond role so the james bond cinematic universe which yeah. which i think would be <laughs> interesting and they talked about doing this way back with like there was a there was an attempt to spin 
Holly Berry's Jinx character off into her own series of films and it went nowhere. And then Eon went on record saying, well, we don't want to dilute the marketplace. And I'm like, mm, you have one film property. Like, and, and you have so, like 30 of them. It's already yeah. diluted. <gasps> right. But I also adored Charlie's Angels and I, I liked the new one. You know, Monica, you said you you had you, you were questionable about the new one, but I, I thought it was interesting. I, I wanted to see more. And Trisha, you mentioned the TV show Homeland, which I was a big fan of. That's more realistically. I mean, it's not realistic because it's still Hollywood eyes, but it's but it's it's not the same because James Bond, the spy, does very little spy work. He's mostly a superhero. He's not really doing the espionage. There's no secrecy. He's he's superheroing mostly. Yeah, I think Homeland is interesting. Yeah, it does feel more realistic for sure. But the CIA would never allow somebody who was bipolar, I don't think, to, to serve as one of their officers, um, especially in the field. And she's kind of this what I like about that show, though, she's like this interesting hybrid. She is like part operational and part analyst. And that that combination you don't often get to see, you know, so much of the analyst side of intelligence work never makes it into spy movies. In fact, one of the reasons the CIA really wanted to cooperate on Zero Dark Thirty was that it showcased so much of the like intelligence analysis that went into locating where bin Laden was and then spends not so much time on the actual raid itself, where a lot of other films <clears throat> focused on the Navy SEAL operation and kind of left the CIA out of it altogether. So when they heard that a feature film was going to be made about, you know, the bin Laden raid and, and really assassination of bin Laden, they were they were all in. They did everything they could to cooperate with those film writers and directors, really opened the doors for them because they knew this was going to be like the biggest and most popular film about the event. They wanted to be sure that they could have a hand in shaping that narrative and were really excited about it because it showcased the CIA's role from an intelligence, like an analyst perspective rather than an operational one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we're kind of talking about different things when we're talking about, I mean, there's kind of the genre of like the spy thriller, which is slightly more tied to reality. Like, I mean, sort of in the Jean Le Carre tradition versus spy fi, which has always had that fantastical element. I mean, it's called spy fi because it's like sci-fi spies, right? And so mm -hmm. James Bond is more in that spy fi tradition, but sort of I would think about Homeland more in that spy thriller tradition a little bit, despite the fact Sarah. that it's very over the top as well. It's closer to Jason Bourne, definitely, yeah. than, than James Bond. Well, where do you fall on a Kingsman? I mean, Kingsman is, you'd say that's the spy fi. I mean, there are a lot of gadgets and it's also, I mean, again, the Kingsman are superheroes. It's 100% spy fi. And I mean, it's yeah. made by the son of Robert Vaughn, who played Napoleon Solo in Man from Uncle. So it's got that that's direct tie to spy fi. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, other than the fact that they are vaguely inspired by, are, are, are you postulating that, they're, that these are just two entirely different animals that aren't really related. I really like spy thrillers, but I love spy fi. So to me, they're not that related. I mean, it's just that spy fi is so bound up in, I mean, we haven't talked that much about sort of objecthood and excess, which I know Monica wanted to talk about more, but I mean, the ways that that is part of the meaning of like a spy fi story. I mean, the set pieces of James Bond are the stories. I mean, you have a political plot as well, but I mean, certainly the way I watch them is that the story is in the clothes and the cars and the objects. And that's the story and the actual spy work. Most of it is where because I always had this idea that I, I played like the Casino Royale, like first person shooter video game. And I was like, spent a lot of time thinking about how weird it was because I was like, no, the James Bond game should be you have to pick out the right suit jacket and watch. And if you pick the wrong one, you're going to get shot at the poker table. <laughs> that's what the James Bond game should be. It's not just shooting people. I mean, that's so strange to me. And that was just so clear in my mind that I was like, am I wrong? And I was like, no, I'm not wrong. Like, 
the Ian Fleming novel spends so much time, as Monica was saying, you know, describing those things, except, you know, as Monica once again astutely pointed out, it's usually the villains looking at Bond and describing his wardrobe, and there's like a queer coding there. But it's fascinating the way he's described in those books, because it is so much like fan fiction. Like, you know, the way that fan fiction sort of over-describes bodies and characters, and that's kind of some of the sensuality of not all fan fiction, but it is sort of a trope of fan fiction. And very much the way the villains look at Bond and Ian Fleming novels is exactly like that. They're like focused on, look at the way he just tilts his ankle, you know, when he places his foot like on his knee and like, look at the perfect way that the cuff of his pants hits his ankle. Look at the way he casually holds his book, like he's displaying it in front of him and is sort of disinterested in what he's reading and yet totally at peace in his surroundings. And it goes on and on and on for paragraphs and paragraphs, which, you know, that's the villain saying that, but it's also Ian Fleming saying that. And it's just like the queerness of those books just suffuses them. It's also Ian Fleming saying those things kind of about himself. (laughs) Yes. yes, (laughs) Which which is also on its own incredibly masturbatory in in a very fun way. I mean, (laughs) I agree. But yeah, I don't associate sort of the spy thriller with that same level of sort of consumeristic fetishization that sort of spy fi really dwells in and delights in. That's fair enough. I guess I never really thought about it that much, but yeah, I mean, they are very different. And I, I, the connection I always make is because of like the Bourne movies, right? Like people, people talk about the Bourne movies killed the previous Bond franchise, right? Like the Daniel Craig James Bond franchise is specifically <laughs> built around you've got to try and get some of them Jason Bourne fans back, right? Because Kingsman is closer to what Roger Moore and Dalton and Bronson were doing, right? Daniel Craig is not, there's barely any gadgets, right? He's not, he's not hiding any bombs in his shoe. I mean, you yeah. saw them kind of semi trying to go back to a realistic thing but I mean like think about the poker game in Casino Royale it's like they don't even play poker it's like the whole scene is just the exchange of glances it's just a competition of masculine performance between these two oh, men sure, at the poker sure. table and very self-consciously right mm-hmm. you would be so disappointed if a Bond film didn't have Q right or all of Q's technology being employed in it and you're right Jason Bourne is not that kind of spy he's much more likely to rely on like objects in his natural and immediate surroundings Right. So, oh, look, there's a, I don't know, a screwdriver that's going to, I remember like in the scene, I think he, he wraps a telephone cord around his mm-hmm. like, nemesis neck in, in the, in the first movie. Um, yeah. He kills a man with a table leg. Like it's literally just what's in the and room and how do I with. turn it into a weapon? Right. So it's, mm-hmm. he's, he's much more reliant, I think on his brains than, than Bond is like Bond is reliant on the technology where Bourne is reliant on like his resourcefulness. And it's not, the, the two aren't mutually exclusive, but I just feel like born is more of like a human intelligence like hum- using human int right like not relying on like electronic communications or satellite technology or whatever kind of technological gadget can help him like finish his mission and born is like i'm going to use my hands and i'm going to use my brain and that's going to be enough it's funny though right because the jason born movies kind of get talked about you know making the spy a superhero because of sort of the excessive physical powers that he seems to have and yet you know i said at the beginning of the pod my two great loves are spies and superheroes, but that's not, I consider spy-fi to be way more like superheroes because of the performative aspects. Because if you're not getting dressed up in a costume to do your job, then you're not really being, you know, part of the spy-fi genre. And if you're not putting on like brightly colored tights to go do your job, you're not really being a superhero either. So I don't know. To me, like that performative aspect is really key. We are again talking about, again, sort of that shift of when those movies came out, right? Because when we're talking about Jason Bourne, we're also talking 
about like Christopher Nolan Batman. Like we're we're talking mm-hmm. like superheroes are super because they're they're gritty and real versus I brought this up in the blog post a little bit, but Eon in their documentary very specifically talks about this being a shift they feel like was we were headed towards anyway, but that was really pushed by September 11th. The idea mm-hmm. of things being larger than life and and campy uh, no longer fit the fact that now very scary supervillains existed in the real world. And so there was this like shift culturally and that's why we sort of see this division at least recently between spy like spy-fi and spy genre which again is sort of to bring us back to Kingsman is the thing that makes it so interesting because Kingsman is this very conscious return to mm-hmm. like Brosnan Bond that we haven't had in over 20 years at the point that Kingsman comes out. I mean it's really interesting in terms of fandom too I'm not an expert on this topic but Kingsman like the movie franchise has a huge female fandom huge 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 in terms of fan fiction and I find that very interesting in terms of the spaces that mm-hmm. it's allowing to play with gender which is very much part of the spy-fi tradition, I would argue. Like, despite how misogynist we might think these spaces are, they have always had, like, a definite appeal to to female viewers. Mm -hmm. I think that that, again, comes back to the objectification of all of these male characters, right? Is there is a sense in which we feel that we can, for lack of a better word, but, like, play with them because they aren't really real people. Like, if you can dress them up and you can give them toys, then you can decide who they're going to fuck in fan fiction, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, (laughs) I could talk all day about the Man from Uncle fandom and, you know, it's one of the foundational slash fandoms and the ways that the bodies of the men get used in that space and even the way that that ties into something like toys, because, you know, the Man from Uncle action figures have, you know, changeable clothes and all of that kind of stuff. And then people in fandom do things like take photos of Napoleon and Ilya in clothes that they make for them and design little settings for them and make you know doll stories featuring them and i don't know like these texts open up possibilities to do that even though the text might not be officially sanctioning those things which is again itself very gendered because when we look at there's very specific tax codes that differentiate what a doll versus an action figure is one of the the defining characteristics of a doll versus an action figure is the ability to change clothes Mm -hmm. and so the idea that man from uncle toys, which I would assume were originally marketed towards boys, their yeah. their essential function, their quote-unquote action, is the ability to change their clothes, which is yep. the thing that is then defining them as dolls, which is usually what a girl would play with, which is again sort of this, like, you really are opening up spaces in which gender is usually divided in order to blur and make your own, which is really interesting. I'm not sure. It probably predates the distinction the financial distinction because Man From U.N.C.L.E. ran from Anna 64 to 68, 69, something like that. 65 to 69, it's I true. think. And, and more of the toy tax laws you start to see in the in the 80s and 90s. I'm trying to like remember the episode, but I'm pretty sure in both Get Smart and in The Man From U.N.C.L.E. So prior to these shows, like homosexuality was something that was so feared in intelligence communities, right? Because to be queer in any way, shape or 
reform was considered, you were considered to be a black male threat, right? And the Cambridge yep. Five and the fact that three of them were gay men in, 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 in on varying degrees publicly was, was like confirmation, like, look, see, like you you can totally be blackmailed by the Russians. But in both Get Smart and in The Man from Uncle, you have protagonists who dress as women in some, in some episodes, but they're doing it, they're playing with gender performance in a way that's not to be feared or associated with villainy. It's really something that's seen as resourceful and campy and it, it's celebrated rather than villainized. And I, I feel like mm-hmm. that's one of like the biggest like, sort of shifts in those shows that happened in the 60s with gender performance and queer identity in those episodes. So I, I think it was the Mother Muffin Affair. I don't know if you remember the episode. Oh, yes, I do. Boris uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Karloff plays a villain in drag in that episode. It's the man from Uncle, girl from Uncle crossover. That was all I was going to say. <laughs> that's, just, a, that's a fascinating episode. I, mean, I, 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 I do find like the drag performance of Boris Karloff to be surprisingly inoffensive. Like he kind of plays it like he just commits to it like I'm playing a woman. And I mean, people are going to have different mileage on that because it's a very controversial thing, especially, you know, it's in a camp context. So people are going to have different mileage. But if anyone is interested in kind of anything that we mentioned about that episode, I would highly encourage you to check it out because it is to be a very fascinating hour of television. So but so it's the villains who cross-dress, not the protagonist? It is the villain that cross-dresses. Okay, then that yeah. totally so it, doesn't com- it doesn't completely bro- break the trope there. Okay. Yeah. You have sort of more minor versions of it, though, in terms of things like Ilya playing a hairdresser in like ways that are very queer coded. So there is stuff like that, but they only go so far with it. But I mean, again, the thing that I found particularly fascinating about Man from Uncle is how far they do go with it. And because it's in that sort of context of 60s camp, I do think a lot of those gestures are very conscious. You know, there's an episode that features Vincent Price being incredibly camp as the villain. And there's a scene in that episode where uh, Napoleon and Ilya teach a girl how to kiss by standing on either side of her and passing her between them so that they're almost (laughs) kissing. I mean, you know, they do stuff like that, like on purpose, you know, to kind of like titillate the viewer, even if they're very unwilling to actually commit to being queer. I mean, it was the 60s and it was a spy show. Like again, (laughs) part of the lavender scare. We're not ever going to see that on a 60s spy show during that era. But the degree to which they're willing to kind of tease that is still very fascinating to me. So there was actually an episode of Get Smart where there was a character named Charlie Watkins who often dressed as like basically a playboy bunny and he had a masculine voice but it was a female actress who who played that character and 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 that character worked for oh god what's the name of the spy agency it was chaos and control right yep 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 chaos and um, control is different yeah 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 so so charlie watkins was always basically dressing in drag and and, and passing as a woman and was on the side of the quote-unquote good guys and there are scenes in that episode i think he's in a couple of episodes where maxwell smart actually hits on charlie watkins knowing that he's a man but is so attracted to the female representation of Charlie Watkins right and it's a female actress that's playing him that there's like this yeah definitely a queer text if if I think it's more than a subtext I think it's a text right in that episode and so you do have some some I don't know gender bending or or queer representations that are not associated with villainy even as early as the 60s oh yeah and I mean Get Smart is very directly like a parody of Man from Uncle which was itself already sort of a parody of James Bond so I think the fact that you have that character showing up mm-hmm. in Get Smart shows that, you know, the creators of Get Smart are conscious of that queer subtext in the thing that they're parodying. Yeah. So we've resolved nothing. Ah. As always. But it was a good discussion nonetheless. <laughs> I gotta say, I'm so grateful to, to have you guys uh, to find other people who want to talk about
about spies as much as me. And I... don't go see the Kingsman movie. <laughs> well, this has really made me wish that I was working on that book that I haven't been writing from time to time. Like I'll get engaged in a conversation about spies with people like, oh, I'm so excited to talk about this. I was like, right, I should just be writing that book that I'm supposed to be writing about it. And then I would get that urge scratched all the time. OK, good. No, this was this was great. I mean, I, I agree. Don't see Kingsman, though. See the original ones, because I actually I, what I think delightful. we're all saying is, yeah. And I think that they're subversive in a way that I think is a lot more interesting than just, oh, the rap they got from a lot of people was, well, these are sexist because of the anal sex line at the very end of the first. That's what it really was. It was like that ruined it for everybody. And I thought I always thought that that made the show because I think it was the perfect commentary on what James Bond had become at that point. So so I like the Kingsman movies. And then I didn't like this most recent one because there was none of that. This was just stupid. Well, I will definitely not go know. see it then. <laughs> but uh, Trisha, if find out more about you, you've got a couple of books out and you've got uh, your own show. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, I have a website, www.trisha with a T-R-I-C-I-A Jenkins.com. Mm -hmm. So if you yes. want to find out more about my research, I've got a book called The CIA in Hollywood, How the um, Agency Shapes Film and TV. And I actually just had a new book come out literally three days ago with the University of Kansas. Yes. Thank you. It's called, it's funny that you said that you were all into superheroes and spies because this one is called Superheroes, Movies and the State, How the U.S. Government Shapes Cinematic Universes. And that's linked in the show notes. Right. And you. Anna. Oh, I'm just so excited to check out Trisha's books now. I can't believe I hadn't read your CIA one, but I definitely will be picking it up. I'll be picking up both of those books for sure. Yeah, you can find me on my other podcast with Mav called Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow, <laughs> which, you know, listeners of the show already know about it, I'm sure. We're rereading the classic Marvel series Excalibur. I also have another podcast called Three Panel Contrast, which is a monthly discussion of comics classics. You can find me on Twitter at Papard underscore Anna. And if you're so inclined to talk more about sex and gender and, and superheroes, then you can check out my anthology, Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero, which is the same publisher as one of Trisha's books because I looked it up during the podcast. So that's with University of Texas Press. Awesome. Mav. And Monica Marvelous. You know, I want to give a book recommendation. Um, if you also love spy fashion, you might want to read the book Fashioning James Bond, Costume, Gender, and Identity in the World of 007. And that's by Luella Chapman. Or you might want to read uh, Dress to Kill, James Bond, The Suited Hero. And that one is by Jay McErnie. And if you just want to talk spy fashion with me, you can find me on Instagram or on Twitter at Monica Marvelous. On Instagram, that's L-O-U-S. And on Twitter, that is L-O-U-X. And you can follow me, as always, on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, all of the places, always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show all those same places at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com, where you can find out what we're talking about next week. And if you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from and do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review. If you leave us a five-star review, on, especially on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, that helps other people find the show, makes us more popular, gooses the algorithm, all those good things. And, you know, it's Christmas. Today is a couple days after Christmas and you didn't get me a present. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to write me a five-star review. That will make me happy. I would once again like to thank both of our guests. I'd like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtmore Music for our epic theme song building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd like to thank you at home for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. -bye.